I didn't know that, or I should have known, but that was, I didn't know that was my cue. Bonjour. You know what? That cup of coffee I had this morning, that was not church coffee. That was good coffee. That was like awesome. You know what? That's um, not when, but if I ever grow up, I want to be like your pastor, Danny. He's been such an inspiration to me. I think he preached once at uh, the church that I pastored, the Evergreen Church, right up First Avenue. And I think his uh, CD sales that day exceeded anybody that ever preached there, including me on my best Sunday. So it's always good to, to be here you know, and see the fruit of his ministry in you. And I know you appreciate him as much as I do. I want to begin you know, by saying that it's my objective you know, that when we leave here today that you'll go away knowing uh, that it's no comfort to you, you know, to, have, to find comfort in the failure of others. You know, however, viewing others' trials from the right perspective, you can legitimately be encouraged to believe that you know, in spite of your most glaring weaknesses, you can still be of use in the kingdom of God. In, in other words, don't gloat over other people's weaknesses or lose heart over your own shortcomings as if there is any hope for you in comparing yourselves favorably or unfavorably to others. No, your only hope in this life or the next is found not in your performance or in someone else's failure, but in the Lord. So if that's our takeaway, you know, how do we get there uh, today? Uh, you know, while it might not have been your experience personally, it's common enough phenomena, you know, that most of you, you know, will have witnessed something like what I'm about to describe. You know, and I'm talking about the parent, you know, who, you know, behind their child's back, you know, kind of in public will, will praise their child. You know, at a sporting events, they'll be, you know, at a boy, go get him, girl, you know, whatever it might be, that's my son. And so he's bragging about his children before others. But, it's, but for example, um, you know, when they're face-to-face at home, they can be tough on their kids. You know, how many of you know what I'm talking about? How many of you experienced that yourself? Some of us have. You know, I knew a college coach one time. He took me to his son's high school football game. The kid was good. He was not just good. He was great. As quarterback, he'd put the ball, I mean, right on the numbers every time. But he threw so hard that his receivers often could not handle uh, the, the ball. I mean, just bounced off their shoulder pads and it was gone because, I mean, this guy had an arm. His dad, who was sitting by me, chomping on a big stogie. That was in the good old days. That's D-A-Z-E. You know, when people could smoke cigars at football games. You know, but he would say, for everyone to hear, that's my boy. He's going all the way, all the way to the NFL. You know, face to face, however, the gospel in their family was more like, you know, if you worked hard enough at anything, especially football, you could succeed. You know, that would not have been true for me. When I graduated from high school, I was five foot six. I weighed 127 pounds. And it's like it was a fat chance that I would ever play football at that high school or any place else. Just wasn't going to happen. However hard I tried, however whatever my work ethic was, it's like I knew if I turned out, no one would pick me. That's what's great about the Lord is that we've been chosen. You know, and having been chosen, it means a lot to me because I was never picked for something. And to, and to be picked by the Lord, saying, you know what, I don't care if you're good at football or basketball or baseball. I'm picking you because I love you for who you are. You know, and it's a case sometimes where acceptance, you know, of our, you know, a child's acceptance, you know, in the family is, is hard one, hard to find. But it's not just about hard work. You know, because, I mean, this guy, this quarterback I was talking about, as a baby, you know, his father would take him to football practice. And by the time he was a toddler, he'd already learned how to throw a football. And you know, he was encouraging all the time. He says, when you grow up, you're going to be a quarterback. You know, and hopefully you'll be on the team that I'm coaching. No pressure there. But that's how it went in their home, you know. So the reason I tell this story is to ask you to consider the possibility that something like this, you know, might have influenced the relationship that existed between Paul and Timothy. In other words, in front of others, Paul praised Timothy. There's no one like him. He can, he's concerned for you like no one else is. Everyone else is seeking their own, their own thing, but Timothy, man, he's, he's my boy. I'm saying go, go get him. But to his face, Paul could be hard on Timothy. You know, and, and what does that lead us to believe? Think about it like this. Last week I was with my grandkids on a beach north of Boston. And one day on the way to get ice cream with my six-year-old grandson, Jack, he and I were walking along a sidewalk along the road. And there's no boulevard between the sidewalk and the road. It's a sidewalk and it's a narrow sidewalk, too narrow for me to hold his hand 
and walk in that same width. So I was having to walk behind him or he would have to walk behind me. And it just goes to the curb and the curb was into the street. So we're walking along and all of a sudden this, you know, a sprinkler from one of the yards up to our right as we were going um, north began to hit us. It was kind of going like a rainbird sprinkler, I think they call them. And it hit us, you know, but Jack, my son, just darted into the street to get away from the thing. And I mean, a car was coming and I screamed. I said, Jack, to get out of the street. Now, what if someone, you know, not having witnessed that whole drama, heard it? Jack, get out of the street. I mean, what could they surmise? What might they conclude just on that verbal cue? I mean, they would know pretty much for sure that someone named Jack, you know, had gone into the street and he'd put himself in harm's way and someone was so concerned they screamed at the top of their lungs, Jack, get out of the street. I mean, what can you conclude other than that? You know, so here's the deal. Adding it all up, I would submit to you that someone, you know, if they were to write to you a letter saying this, don't be ashamed of the gospel. You know, what would a person reading that letter logically think? This. They would think this, that you may at times have been ashamed of the message of the gospel and the message that Paul preached. And by extension, ashamed of Paul as well. You know, by this same token, we can logically conclude that to begin with, Timothy, by virtue of what Paul told him, and we can surmise in the, in the background. I mean, like if Paul's telling Timothy, get out of the street, you can think Timothy's like playing in the street. But so what we can conclude is that Timothy most likely came from a dysfunctional family. How many know, I mean, that every family is dysfunctional at some level or in some respect? If it's not in your own nuclear family, some uncle, some aunt, some grandma, grandpa, they're like crazy Uncle Bob, you know, something is wrong in that family. And it's usually right at home. There's only one non-dysfunctional family in the entire universe. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's it. And all the rest of us, you know, are trying to put the fun back into dysfunctional, but we're not making it all the time. We're not succeeding. And so Timothy's got a mom who's a Jewess who's believed in Christ. She's facing persecution from her own people, sometimes at the point of, you know, at the threat of her own life. And her mom, also a Jewess, has given her life to Christ. And they're expecting Timothy to now give his life to Christ, which he does. And then Paul has him, you know, to be circumcised, even though his father is a Greek. Timothy's father, that is, is a Greek, a Gentile, one for whom the gospel is foolishness and utter nonsense. And so you can just see the tension that could build there. I mean, I don't think you have to read between the lines too far to understand that there was conflict in that family. There was crisis in that family. There was a challenge for, to that family's unity that probably shattered or ruptured the bonds within that family to some extent. So Timothy most likely came from a dysfunctional family, but he overcame that obstacle to become one of the greatest you know, New Testament figures that we can see. But secondly, in light of the fact that he came from that dysfunctional family, he may have had trouble maintaining a positive self-image. You know, for example, in 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul writes to him, let no one look down on you because of your youth. You know, and he'd let other people define who he was by looking down on him. You know, he began to think, you know what, I'm no good. I'm too young to do this job. But there's no excuses, you know, in the gospel. You may think I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too uneducated. I'm too poor, whatever the case may be, there's no excuse. So Timothy could say, I have come from a dysfunctional family, you know, beginning to make excuses, beginning to say he was a victim of a situation that he couldn't change. But Paul's saying, you know what, you can do this. You can make it through a negative self-image. You know, when my oldest son was um, 30, he was self-conscious about his age. You know, that is until his boss gave him a new script to employ. It helped him overcome his negative self-image, and it played out like this. One time when he was making a pitch to a major client, just about when he's to close the deal, one of the directors of the company said, that's all fine and good, but how old are you, young man? And it was at this point that he answered in the way that his boss had instructed him, saying, I'll be 42 on July, 4, July 30th. This coming July 30th? No, on 30, uh, July 30th, 12 years from now. But putting that aside, if you consider my proposal on the basis of facts alone, you'll know that my company is the best one to get the job done. So he still struggled with self-image problems, excuse me, um, related to his, his relative youth and inexperience, but no longer let others define what his image of himself should be. I think you remember, I, I think it was, who was, Ronald Reagan was running against Mondale, is that who, what the ticket was? I can't remember, but someone said, you know, there's 
um, you know, a problem with how old Ronald Reagan was. And I'm not saying, I'm not endorsing him or not endorsing him, I'm just saying that in the debates, you know, that, that his age was challenged. And, you know, he says, what about the age factor? And he says, well, considering that, he says, I'll not hold my, my opponent's youth and relative lack of experience against him. Thirdly, this, not only does he come from a dysfunctional family, not only does he have a negative self-image, he sometimes feels, um, the people that feel bad about themselves often try to compensate for that insecurity by going on the attack. Timothy apparently tended to be harsh and argumentative. How many know people like that, that out of their insecurity, they come across stronger than they might otherwise have done? And out of their own insecurity and their own weakness and their own you know, sense of lack and loss in their own life, maybe having come from a dysfunctional family, maybe having had a, dis, you know, a negative self-image, they come across in an overbearing, harsh, negative kind of way. So Paul writes to Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but treat him as a father. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Avoid worthless and idle chatter, which often only leads to ungodliness. And then will not, then, excuse me, God's presence is, in his presence, Paul is encouraging Paul to command people to stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless, Paul said, and they can destroy those who hear them. So Timothy, maybe his besetting sin was that negative, hostile, overbearing, critical attitude in conversations. You know, I can identify with this in a certain extent. I'll just give you one example. When people come knocking at my door, and it's, guess who? Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. This last time it was Mormons. And I used to just try and undo them. I tried to just tear them apart, try to methodically rip apart everything they believed, try to destroy them and crush them, you know, by virtue of any kind, you know, intellectual arguments, by going to the Greek, you know, by, you know, showing them that in the Greek New Testament it says this and this and this and this, and you, what you're saying is this. Anyway, these Mormons came to my door, and I, I didn't say, oh, no, you know, how can I brace myself up to them? How can I crush them? you know, with my arguments, you know, with my zeal, with my superior knowledge, whatever that, you know, and I'm thinking, they come to my door and they go, Ben, is that your car out there? And I go, yeah, I can't drive it anymore because I'm half blind. And they go, well, man, that's sure a cool car. And I said, here, take keys and take it out for a spin. They're on bicycles, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> they go, no, we couldn't do that. I said, yes, you can do it. It's my car. You can do it if you want to. Here's the keys. And I held them out like right like this. They go, no. And I go, yeah. They go, no. And I go, yeah. Finally, at the end of the day, they didn't go on, didn't drive my car, but I could tell they wanted to. And so I'm saying, you know, I said, you guys, I really admire you. And they said, what do you mean? I said, I admire you because you're bold to go door to door facing rejection that you face. And that's something I admire about you. I think that what you're saying is like not true. I don't think I can believe that. I don't think I can embrace that. You know, and here's a couple of reasons why, but you know what? I love you guys and have a great day. It's like, isn't that better? It's better for me. I think it's better for them and it's better for the kingdom of God. It's better for the furtherance of the church. It's better for the possibility that they might someday accept the Lord, you know, on the basis of the fact that I offered him the keys to my car. Who knows? It could be something as simple as that. Fourthly, after these three big setbacks, three things that Paul and Timothy has wrong with him, it seems that his ability to minister suffered from various infirmities, and thus he was often sick. You know, what about the guy? He went to the hospital, and he got out of a surgery, and they said, you know, the doctor says, do you want the good news or the bad news? He says, well, give me the... Um, the, the bad news first. No, when you tell me the good news, it'll cheer me up. He says, well, the bad news is this. He says, well, when you went in you know, to have surgery, we amputated the wrong arm. He says, well, what's the good news? He says, the good news is that your other arm's going to be all right after all. <laughs> it's pretty morbid in a way, but three years ago, I was having severe headaches, and doctors wanted me to go in for this test. You know, where I, I went through this test. It was a $35,000 brain scan. And they came out of the brain scan. They said, guess what? And I go, what? There's good news and there's bad news. I said, what's the good news? The good news is, is that there's nothing wrong in your head, nothing wrong in your brain. What your problem is, is, is you've got sinus problems. I said, really? That could cause that much of a problem? And they go, yeah, and that's the problem you have, because you, know, you have a bony mass. I broke this, my, this cheekbone one time skiing in a ski race, and it was just shattered, and, it, and all the broken bits of the bone fell into my sinus. And so I have like a metal plate here wired together in seven places kind of holding my eye up somewhat. 
And, uh, but they said, the problem is, is not with that. I said, what's the bad news, if that's the good news? The bad news is, is that when we were doing the procedure, we caused a stroke. And I went in for studies after that, and gradually the, the symptoms got worse and worse and worse to the point that I could no longer see. You know, and I gradually began to get my sight back, but even now I have like 25% total blackout blindness in, in that much of my eye, and 75% severely impaired sight. But it's like I can overcome it in some ways because like a dime, you hold a dime like this in between your fingers and look at it, it completely occludes your vision. But if you hold a dime out here, you can still see. Like right here, I couldn't see a license plate. I couldn't read the numbers on a license plate. But out there, you know, 20 yards away, I could read it and read the numbers. So there's my eyes do kind of a workaround. But looking at my notes this morning, it's like a blur of double vision. I'm trying to catch it between, you know, before it shifts and like, and then I catch it and it's hard. And I've lost about 30% of my hearing. But guess what? I'm not making an excuse about that. I'm just saying, you know what? If somebody that's blind, they say his hearing becomes more acute. Isn't that true? And I think it's absolutely true. And I've witnessed that and experienced that in others. And so if that's true, and I've lost both vision and I've lost hearing, I said, what's the compensatory? You know, what do I get on the other side of this deal to, the, to equal the equation of loss that I've sustained? And the thing is, is I think I've asked God to give me greater spiritual insight, to give me greater mercy, to give me more compassion, to help me do this, to help me hear what he's saying in a still, small voice. Last week before I went to Boston, I was in New York City in Manhattan, and I went down to a coffee shop. And at the coffee shop, there was like a, just a melee of people, I mean, tons of people getting up, you know, elbowing their way to get coffee that was not as good as your coffee, by the way. But it was good. And we were there, and there was a woman that was near me about 10 feet away, and she had her head down on, her, on the table like this, and she was just crying. I could hear her sniffling a little bit, and I just go, man, that's... And normally, a person wouldn't do that in public and then just stay there. I mean, it might, I'm thinking she might just slip out or something like that, but she's like, just has her head down, and she's... <laughs> And pretty soon she starts getting louder and louder. Pretty soon her shoulders are shaking and she's like sobbing and wailing. And there's people just like walking by her and like getting cream in their coffee, sugar, stirring, uh, stirring it up. And, uh, and, but she's still, I mean, she is sobbing. And everyone in the restaurant is kind of like just trying to ignore that she's there. And the Lord says, I want you to go and just bring her a word of comfort. I said, what do I have to say to her? I don't even know who she is. She's a total stranger in New York City. I said, people in New York City do not come up to people that they don't know but I just thought she needs somebody to be with her. And the Lord gave me a word for her that, that whatever she was going through, that she would get through it, that she'd come out on the other side. So I just went up and I put my hand on her shoulder and she didn't even lift her head. She just kept on sobbing. And, just, and so I just put my face right down to her ear and I said, you know what? So whatever you're going through right now, you're gonna get through it. You're gonna get through it. And I wanted her, I said, I want you to feel the peace of God right now. Remember Jesus, when the woman touched his robe, you know, with the feeling that if she just touched the hem of his garment, that something good would happen along the way for her. And she did so, and she was healed. And Jesus goes, who touched me? His disciples are going, what are you talking about? You're an idiot. There's people pressing it on from every side. What do you mean, who touched me? He says, somebody touched me in a peculiar way with faith, you know, in such a way that I felt virtue proceed out of my body. And what's that all about? I think in some way, whenever we speak, whenever we encounter another person, there's some virtue that's proceeding out of us. It's our very person and life, you know, tied up, intermingled with the Lord, going out to reach and touch that other person that we've encountered. And so I just say, I just want you to receive the peace of God right now. And I felt peace. And she just goes, and she just stops sighing. Her shoulders stop shaking. And she just quiet. It's almost like a baby, you know, crying at night, you know, put it on their shoulder, and just like that child just goes, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. And I told her, it's going to be all right. Receive the peace of the Lord. Shalom. 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 You know, Hebrew, shalom means peace, but perfect peace is shalom, shalom. So I just whispered that in her ear. Shalom. Shalom. Be at peace. And I just felt this peace. And she felt it too, I could tell. But I had to get going, so I just pack up my stuff and I walk out the door. I never saw her, never talked to her again, but I know something happened when I prayed for her. When I, I didn't even pray for her, I just spoke to her. I just told her, you know, it's gonna be okay. You're gonna make it through on the other side. There's times when probably all of us at one time or another didn't think we were gonna make it through this trial, didn't think we were gonna make it through this day or week or month or a year. How can I do this? But you've survived. You've made it. So Timothy, being sick all the time, being 
um, uh, I mean, trialed, you know, and, and that he faced. It's just like that didn't stop him. He went through. He went through his insecurity. He could push through his dysfunctional family, push through his harshness and arrogance and intellectual pride and rudeness. And he pushed through the sicknesses that he would always face. I mean, who knows what he had? They, Paul said to him, drink a little wine for your stomach and for your often infirmities. What, did, what was wrong with him? I don't know, but I know it was bad enough that he complained to others about it. And Paul recommended a remedy. How many of you have just been talking to somebody and you said, man, I got this problem. And, that, and they've got like three pounds of vitamins, you know, in seven different bottles. Like, if you just take this, you're going to be all right. So how much did you pay for this? It's in, more than all my entire food budget for a month. <laughs> But they think they know what's wrong with you and how to handle the situation. Paul just says, just have a cup of wine. And who wouldn't rather do that? <laughs> Fifth, and this is pretty serious. Timothy struggled with ungodly passions. What did Paul have to tell him? Flee youthful lust. You know, if someone's telling you, flee youthful lust, what does it mean? Get out of the street. Flee youthful passions. Flirting with Facebook friends. It offends God, and it leads you to places you don't want to go. It objectifies the opposite sex. You know, as a means to gratify your own desires, you depersonalize someone else. You know, internet porn, guys, don't go there. Gals, don't go there. Some kind of wishful, wistful thinking that somehow you can go back to high school, reattach, you know, hook up with your old friends, that is, girlfriends or boyfriends, whatever the case may be. But what about the person, you know, in the midst of addiction to pornography says, there's no condemnation. I'm forgiven. In fact, I've been made the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Okay? That being so, act like it. Act like it. Let there be no incongruity between who you are in Christ and who you are in the world. What is it when they call it when you have that incongruity between who you are in Christ and who you are in the world. And there's a gap, and that gap has gotten so large that you can't span it anymore in your own self. What do they call that? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. There's sometimes I don't even want to admit I'm a Christian because everyone on the street thinks, Christians, I don't want to be a Christian. A Christian, to be a Christian is to be judgmental, is to be critical, is to be harsh, is to be rude, is to be arrogant, is to be prejudiced, is to be hypocritical, is to be a person who lives his life, her life, in incongruity with who he or she really is in the Lord. And it pulls you apart. It tears you apart. You can't maintain the unity of your own self and the integrity of your own person if you're going down that path. David said, Lord, unite my heart that I might fear your name. What does he mean? He says, like, pull together all the bits, all the discordant parts of me, and put it together in one new place. Put it in my heart sew me back together, knit my heart back together so it's one heart beating for you. Unite my heart that I might fear your name, David prayed. Timothy struggled with ungodly passions. If you do, there's victory for you in Christ. There's a reality and a power that he has to make, break it through and, and to help you live in such a way you don't have to be ashamed anymore. Number six, sadly, Timothy tended at times to play favorites. What thing in the news right now has come up in a situation where someone has extended you know, friendship to someone else that appears on the basis of their political power? Loretta Lynch you know, um, has met with Bill Clinton last week, and the people began to call in question with that pretty much you know, showing favoritism there might jeopardize Loretta Lynch's objectivity in bringing an indictment against Hillary Clinton, should that be the case. I'm again not saying I affirm or, you know, one side or the other. I'm just saying it's proven to be in the world and it's pointed out in every newspaper that you pick up in the last week that it, that could conceivably cause a conflict, could conceivably cause a conflict of interest. So Timothy at times took, took sides, showed favoritism to someone else. I think it's in um, 1 Timothy 5.21. Paul's telling Timothy, don't take sides. Don't show favoritism to anyone. Don't take sides. Don't run in the street. If Paul is telling him, don't take sides in this situation, what was Timothy doing? Taking sides. You know, as a pastor for 18 years at the Evergreen Church and for having been a pastor many years before that, 
I came to realize that there were times when people were asking me to play favorites. They were doing things, I mean, that made me think, made them think that I should treat them with some kind of different respect, some kind of different attitude than someone else. It happens, and what do you do in such a case? There was one time a guy, you know, won a small legal suit, and he had $5,000, and he says, I want to just give this $5,000 to the Lord. That's my, my tithe, but I want to give it to you. And I said, if it's your tithe, that it goes to the church. He had $5,000 in cash. I mean, who, you know, would not want that in your back pocket? Who could not use that? Who could not use it profitably, even if it's to use for someone else? So you just pass it on, you know, pay it forward. But the Lord just said to me, the tithe belongs to the church. It doesn't belong to you. So I just told him the tithe belongs to the church. And I felt like he was giving me that. It was out of generosity. I don't want to take that away from him. It was generosity. But at the same time, it could have been a hook in my heart you know, that made me think I owed him some special favor. I never once, and I'm not saying anyone that does uh, is wrong, but I never once ever looked at the giving records in our church. Not once, ever. There was one time someone gave a large bundle of stocks to the church, and I had to negotiate them. But that's the only time I ever knew what someone ever gave. I still knew, but not by looking at the records. I knew because I could tell parts of people that were shriveled, hearts of people that were penurious, hearts of people that were, like, greedy. I could, I could pick that up, and I knew that they didn't give. They didn't give. And the only way to get past greediness, the only way to get past the love of money is to give. That's the antidote. That's the cure. You want a cure? That's it. On that same note, there have been many people throughout the ages, Timothy included, who dealt with the temptation to pursue material gain as a priority over other things. You know, perhaps even to the point where Paul says, you know, people have used godliness as a means to financial gain. How many have heard people, television evangelists, they say, if you give to my program, if you give to my ministry, you're going to benefit, and you're going to benefit in this way, and my portfolio, as it were, is pays off in bigger ways than someone else's portfolio. You don't want to invest in this. You know, um, I had people in our, in our church, and you've seen this happen in times past, where they um, ask you to come visit you in the hospital, but they're not investing anything in the church, and not sure we shouldn't go visit them, but it's like, I'm thinking, why doesn't, you know, so-and-so, television evangelist, why doesn't he go visit him in the hospital? Because they've given all their money to him. They haven't paid anything, haven't paid their tithes to the church. I'm thinking, you know, if you go get your groceries, you don't pay for them at Albertsons, you know, when you've picked them up at Safeway. Huh? You know what I'm saying? You know, give, you know, where it's due. So Paul told Timothy in no uncertain terms to run from the longing to be rich. So Paul says it, we know, when he comes to a showdown between faith and these things, he says, get out of Dodge. You know, by these things, clearly, 1 Timothy chapter 6, he means to run from the love of money, to run from the longing to be rich, to run from foolish and harmful desires, and to run from discontentment. No, it's not wrong to be rich. I think God wants to all his people to prosper and to be in health as he would have them be. But it's prosperity with a purpose. It's prosperity to meet not only your needs but the needs of others. It's to make enough. I had one time, I had three cars in my stable one time. I was trying to, and I asked someone, I said, what, is it better for me to have two cars or three cars? The person says, well, it's better to have two cars because three cars makes it look like you're greedy or trying to pile on more than you actually need. I said, no, three cars is better than two. They said, how do you figure? Because I said, because I'm going to give the third car away, and it's to you. Oh. (laughs) That's not just an example. I mean, that was a true story. So, I mean, so three cars are better than two if you're a good steward of what God entrusts you with. See? So Paul says, command those who are wealthy not to be boastful about it or to put, on, put their hope in money, but to adopt the idea of prosperity with a purpose, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share with others. That's the purpose of prosperity, is to give, to meet your needs, and to bless others. Don't run in the street. 
I'm thinking there's a relationship. Somehow in my mind, you know, it kind of worked out that there's a relationship between all this, between Timothy, you know, and a parable that Jesus spoke of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's in Luke chapter 18. I'm just going to read it to you. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, and they despised other. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the tax collector, standing a long ways off, would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, the point is made by some that when the Pharisee prayed, it says that he prayed thus with himself. Where was God in that equation? Nowhere to be found. He prayed thus with himself. He wasn't even in dialogue with God. He prayed thus with himself. So it could be said in effect that God was not even listening. But on the other hand, we see the tax collector standing well back with a hangdog expression, torn by guilt, praying only this, God have mercy on me, a sinner. So if we were to paraphrase these two prayers, it sounds to me like the Pharisee is praying, I'm not like anyone else. I'm unique. I'm special. I stand head and shoulders above them all. The tax collector, on the other hand, is saying, I'm just like everybody else, standing in the need of prayer. So the Pharisee is saying, I'm not like anyone else. The tax collector is saying, I'm just like everyone else. And I think that's in one way how Timothy was so unique to Paul. He was unique in the ability that he had um, In a, in a way, he did stand head and shoulders above everybody else, but he was unique in the, way, in the fact that he clothed his gifting with humility. He clothed what he was doing, you know, with a lack of pretension. And so that was what was unique about him, you know, that, that Timothy knew God's heart for the church, that his heart was beating with God's heart. He felt what God felt. He um, uh, experienced what God experienced. He participated in the life of God. It's like this. There's times when I literally, like when I'm in the airport and crowds, Puyallup Fair, Manhattan, um, it's like I'm, there's so many people jostling around me that I can't see them. I really can't. And so I have a white cane that I'm carrying. It gets respect. You carry a white plane. You get on the airplane first, all that stuff. So I'm carrying this cane, and I'm going along, and I just started thinking, I'm holding this cane. And it's like I'm invested in this thing. It's guiding me. It's, it's giving me some respect, and people looking at me. It's, it's out there. But I'm living in that cane. I mean, all of my senses, all of my sense of touch, all of my sense of hearing, all what little sense of sight I have, it's like it's all invested in that cane, right out to the tip of the cane, right out to the tip. It's like it, I'm, in, I'm living in that cane, so to speak. But not only that, that cane is living in me. Where I've grasped it, it's entered into my life all the way to some kind of interpretive grid in my mind that interprets you know, the sound of a light post from a curb and I can tell the difference. So I'm invested in it, it's invested in me, I dwell in it, it dwells in me. But what's, isn't that a lot like Christ? We dwell in him. We've invested our entire self in him. What we perceive, we perceive through our knowledge of God, what's been given to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And so when we invest ourselves in God, we begin to feel what he feels. We begin to sense what he senses. My doctoral dissertation I wrote on the subject of prayer, I define prayer in this way. Prayer is our participation in the Son's union and communion with the Father by the Holy Spirit. Our participation with the life of God. We participate in his insight. We participate in his burden. We participate in his communion. We participate in his life. We're living in such a way that we've invested in him. But not only that, he's invested in us. And he knows us. He dwells in us. And so his life becomes our life. Our life becomes his. And, and we dwell together in unity. So Paul says of Timothy, he's unique. You know, he's learning to be concerned for others in the same way that God is concerned for others. And so we don't take comfort or encouragement in the fact that, that we, by comparison to others, you know, are somehow more righteous than, than them. You know, it would be a perversion of 
our understanding of humanity, a perversion of our understanding of, of how we are invested in this world, how we live in an incarnational way. It would be a perversion of that to somehow compare ourselves favorably or unfavorably with someone else and thinking that somehow we have um, the blessing of God on our lives on account of that. We can excuse ourselves from one thing at the same time, you know, um, say we may be guilty of one thing, but we excuse ourselves from that because we're innocent in some other way. There, I, I, somehow, it's just coming to me just now that my father one time tells this story of how one time he and a group of his friends after school one time were coming home from school and there was a brand new street light. I think it was in the early days of probably, you know, mercury vapor lamps or something like that, but it was a brand new street light that was, they had installed them all through their city and they stopped, you know, picked up a handful of rocks and they were just throwing at the street light. Boys will be boys. And they're just tossing rocks. And sometimes somebody hit one. They didn't know who it was really, but someone hit that thing, boom, and it just exploded. And they started running. All, you know, just started running as fast as they could go, as far as they could go, until they'd run out of breath. <sighs> who did that? Was it, was it you? I, I think it was you. And well, they're sitting there trying to debate who was really at fault. The sheriff came up. He says, boys? And they go, yeah. He says, I have a question for you. And they go, what's that? They go, well, I want to know if, you, if one of you, you know, threw the warning sign off the dike into the river. No, we didn't do that. We couldn't have done that because we stopped it. You know, the hemlock store on our way here, and the, the store owner will tell you that, and that way is way out of the way of the dike road. We couldn't have even got there after school. We've just been going, we're just walking down this street. He says, okay. So if you hear who threw that warning sign off the dike road into the river, let me know because that was a dangerous thing to do. Oh, yeah, we'll let you know. So here they were being able to protest their innocence of one thing, the same time as guilty as sin on the other hand. Don't we sometimes do that? You know, when through one of these weaknesses, we begin to make excuses. You know, we begin to, um, uh, you know, live in such a way that we justify our lives. We justify our righteousness. You know, we live in such a way that we're make, you know, we don't, we don't, we excuse one thing because we're righteous or blessed in this other way. I'm trying to think here where this goes. But it's like Timothy, in his weaknesses, in his foibles, we can excuse ourselves because of someone else's sin, of someone else's weakness. But Timothy, you could say, I, I could go on. You know, on the same premise, what we've been using before, it's been argued that Timothy was subject to despondency, depression. How many have been there? It seems that Timothy was impatient, you know, and due to the pressures of his calling, he was on occasion tempted to desert his post, just saying, have it. I don't want this church anymore. His re- you know, the record seems to indicate that he was not a gifted administrator. There were also times when he appeared to be lacking in diligence, and perhaps worst of all, there were times, and we've already alluded to this, when he was ashamed of the testimony of Jesus and embarrassed, moreover, by his association with Paul. I mean, I don't know, this maybe happens to you, but it or doesn't happen to you, but it happens to me. Like I get on an airplane, I made several flights this last couple of weeks, get on an airplane, you know, some, what is it that you do? Uh, well, I do a couple different things. They go, but you know what they're asking. They say, what do you do for a living? It's kind of just small talk, just chit chat. So when I say I'm a pastor, in one way or another, people will actually literally say, well, that's a conversation stopper. <laughs> it's like, where can we go from here? Where can we go from here? I was talking to a guy, I mean, just yesterday, and he, he was beginning to get into a story that was a little bit shaggy dog. And he says, you're not a police officer, are you? And I go, no. <laughs> but if he would have known I was a pastor, he would have never shared the things with me that he did. <laughs> but I didn't want it to be a conversation stopper. I wanted to be there, you know, for him in the way that I could be there for him in a way that he didn't feel guilty for having been what you know, he didn't think he should have been in the presence of a pastor. You know, how many know that, um, I'm having a little, little space out here for a second here. Lord, thank you that there's some idea that you want to communicate here because I've never preached this message before. 
And there's someone here that needs to hear it. Yeah? Thank you, Lord. Oh, yeah. Conversation stopper. And so sometimes I say, as I am an art, I said, I'm an artist. They go, what do you paint? I said, they know I paint um, portraits, landscapes, abstracts. I paint whatever I feel like painting. What medium do you use? Oh, oil on canvas, usually. And I'm, and that's not all you do? Is that just your day job? I go, no, I'm a professor as well. Well, what do you profess? <laughs> What's that? And then what else is it you do? I'm a pastor. Pastor. <laughs> so we end up in that kind of conversation stopper you know ashamed of the gospel not as we should be I was at, because I'm an artist sometimes I look for frames to hang my art in there. you know if you make a picture say just a standard basic picture and you take it to a frame shop to have it framed you know, you've maybe invested so many hours, you know, so much material, a canvas, paint, and this thing, but it's ne- negligible compared to how much it costs to buy a frame. They say, oh, you want this frame? That'll be $200. You want glass on it too? $300. I mean, I'm not kidding you if you do this. I'm thinking, I'm going to go to Value Village. I might see a junk piece of art, but I can pop the art out, and I can put in my own picture and get this frame for like five bucks. I just read an article that said that when you... Uh, you know, purchase a picture, you should look at the frame because sometimes the frame is worth way more than the picture. I go, yeah. Something that someone just thought was junk and they gave it away, they threw it away, gave it to Value Village, Goodwill, St. Vincent de Paul, whatever the case may be, it it could be a real treasure. That frame that no one else considers worth, people are looking looking for art, but that frame might be worth more than anything. Could be a secret treasure. So I walk into Value Village and I kind of go, Lord, and I really prayed this. This is kind of crazy. I don't want to admit this, but I prayed, God, show me something that's just something that someone else has put in the trash, but it's a treasure. It's, it's worth a lot. Why not? Have you ever prayed that, something like that? I know, I'm just a greedy guy, but I just said, just show me something. So I'm looking through, I'm going through all the frames. I'm going to go, there's no treasures here. I'm looking through it. And I lift up my eyes, and I literally, I see this guy across the store, and the Lord just spoke to my heart. I just came to my mind, that's my treasure. It's just this thought that came to my mind. I'm thinking it was the Lord because it wasn't the devil and it wasn't me because I wouldn't have thought that. So this idea came to mind, that's my treasure. You think you're looking for treasure? That's my treasure. And then, and then I said, okay, great. And I started to walk out to my car and the Lord just says, I mean, I just feel led to, you know, when I say says, I don't mean I hear an audible voice, but I mean I have a strong impression. A thought comes to my mind that I know it's not me and it's someone else and it's God. He said, I want you to go tell that guy that he's my treasure. And I go, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. And don't be ashamed of me, his witness. I said to the Lord, this was on a Monday. I said, Lord, this is my day off. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I said that. He says, go tell that guy he's my treasure. And I go, no, he's going to think I'm weird. (laughs) <laughs> so I go, okay, I'll do it. Just show me how I open the door. So I go back there, and the guy's in the Hawaiian shirt section. He's kind of going through this stuff. And then I'm there, and like, I'm thinking, look at this. I said, a Tommy Bahama. The guy says, oh, I wish I'd seen that. He says, I would have I loved to have that. And I said, it's yours. I said, it wouldn't fit me anyway. I think it'll fit you just right. And he goes, yeah, he says, that's great. And we started talking, and he says, you know, what is it that you do? He said, I'm a pastor. He goes, really? He says, I haven't been to church for 30 years. So I live my life in such a way that if I went in a church, the roof would fall in on me. I said, no, it wouldn't. I said, come to my church. He said, I can never, I'd be so ashamed to even come and be with you. And I said, no, you're welcome. I'm the pastor and you, you can come. You're welcome there. I said, I don't think so. And I said, yeah, I think so. And he says, he says my life has just been trashed. People have just, I've, I've been, my life is a garbage can. You don't know what you're asking me to do. People have, you know, have rejected me and I've rejected the church and I've rejected God. And I said, you know what? I said, I happen to have it on very good authority that you're a priceless treasure to God. And at that point, 
he starts crying. I mean, not, but he's like tears were in his eyes and were literally dripping down his cheeks. I mean, and dripping off his chin like this. He says, no one could have said anything to me that was more timely, more precious than that. And I said, well, I said, you're welcome to come to church. And he came that Sunday. Eventually, over the weeks and months, he met a nice young woman in the church. They got married. Can't say they lived happily ever after, but good things are happening in this life. Good things are happening in their life. I was ashamed of the gospel, and I was ashamed of Paul. I was ashamed of being who God had called me to be. Not every day I am, but some days I am. I was at QFC um, some months ago now. I was there. Now I went to this check. I went to the shortest checkout line. Never need to do that. And you know that's going to be the longest one before it's all over. But there's just this one woman, and she's ahead of me. And, she, and, and I mean, the one woman, she was the checker, and this one guy ahead of me, and all he had was a card. One card. Hallmark, you know, it's something that they picked up in the card. And he put it down, as I do, you put it down face down because you don't want everybody to see what, you know, schmaltzy thing that you might be saying to someone else. And um, he put it down, and she picked it up, opened it up, and says, oh, did you get this, you know, for your daughter? Because it says, for, your, for my daughter. She, he goes, yeah. And he goes, she goes, he says, my dad's never given me a card. She said, he has never given me anything. When I got married, I thought he was a great tenor. I thought he would sing, you know, Ave Maria, you know, or Our Father at my wedding, but he didn't even come to my wedding. So it didn't matter anyway, because I had a divorce three months later. And then she gave the guy a card back. He says, your daughter's lucky. And he goes, she's, you know, I don't know what to say. So she bring up the card, he pays for it. I'm next in line. I kind of go, so your dad never even gave you a card, ever. He says, not a birthday card, not a card nothing. I go, wow. Anyway, so I walk out to my car. It wasn't my day off. And I felt like this inclination. He says, go buy her a card. I go, ah, <laughs> I don't think so. But finally, the Lord prevailed, and I went in and bought her a card. And I bought two cards. I bought one for my daughter, and I bought one for her, same card. But one of them I filled out and it said, you know, what, what it said to his daughter and what, the same card I got from my daughter. And it said, and then I signed it with a pen. I said, your loving Heavenly Father. And I got to the checkout center and I turned them both upside down, like that face down. And she, opened, she picked it up and opened the one. She goes, is this for your daughter? I said, yeah. I said, I felt inspired, you know, when you said that your father never sent you a card, that I wanted to send a card to my daughter. And she picked up the next card and opened it up and it ended up saying, you know, your heaven loving Heavenly Father. I said, that card's for you. <coughs> And she started boohooing all over again. And then I was always kind of embarrassed to go through her checkout line again because I thought she's gonna, she really thinks I'm weird. And it's like, I saw if she had a first checkout stand, I, was there, I went to another checkout stand. But one day we ended up kind of on the aisle running, you know, it's like coming opposite ways. And I said, stop. She said, what? I said, did you think that was weird when I got you that card? And she goes, yeah, that was weird. Uh-huh. <laughs> She says, but guess what? I said, what? She said, it's hanging on my refrigerator still. Yeah, still hanging on my refrigerator. Paul says of Timothy that he was unique. You know, in the way that he knew God's heart for the church, and he showed it by demonstrating a genuine interest in the needs of others. He is, in fact, so secure in himself that he has nothing to hide, nothing to show off, nothing to strut, nothing to prove, and he's free, therefore, to serve God in subservience to others. And he learned all the while, you know, that whether being a slave is a matter of pride or shame all depends entirely upon who you're a slave to. Does that make sense? Whether being a slave is a matter of shame or pride all depends upon whom you're serving in the process. So we take no perverse consolation, therefore, in Timothy's foibles. There was a case one time, we had a dog. Her name was Addie. Addie was a bad dog. Bad dog, Addie. Whenever we left the home, she would torture us and make us pay by shredding a couch, you know, or a chair, nor my recliner. I mean, shred stuff, like hundreds and then thousands of dollars worth of stuff. I thought, this dog's crazy. And I went to another guy that owned a dog, and it was actually the brother of my dog. They came from the same litter, and I knew that he had the dog from the same litter. I said, what are you doing? Is your dog as bad as my dog? 
He goes, my dog is way worse. I said, what do you mean? It's like, we just installed an entire underground sprinkler system in our backyard. And he went around pulling them up, you know, uh, sprinkler by sprinkle, pipe by pipe, until he'd unearthed the entire system. I go, wow. That's bad, but it kind of made me giggle inside, I thought. <laughs> but then he'd dig under the fence, and he'd go out and terrorize the rest of the neighborhood, get in fights with everybody else's dog. He'd jump into their yards just to fight with their dog. I mean, seriously. And then he says, so we tied him up to one of the um, four-by-fours underneath our deck. But guess what? He chewed that four-by-four in half. And by the time they got home from work that day, their, their deck had tipped off their house. <laughs> That's a bad dog. So I took some kind of glee, you know, in the fact that somebody had a worse dog than me. <laughs> you know, you hear about rescue animals. It was we that needed to be rescued in such a case. And the, the, situa- the reason I bring that up, and it just came to me just now, some of this stuff's not in my notes because I can't see my notes anyway. <laughs> but it's, it's this, that when we think of Timothy and the foibles that he had, we don't take comfort in that in some kind of perverse way. We take encouragement in the fact that in spite of all his weaknesses, God gave him the victory to be one of the greatest pastors and leaders in the New Testament. He pastored the church in Ephesus, which by many accounts was the largest megachurch of the day. It may have had as many as 25,000 members. It was huge, and he was the pastor. In spite of all his weakness, in spite of all his foibles, in spite of all, you know, what he had, you know, failed in so many ways, God was still able uh, to use him. And so we don't take consolation in Timothy's failures, you know, as somehow you know, in some kind of perverse ways that he's a worse dog than we are. No, we take encouragement in the fact that in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of your weaknesses, God can still use you. My uncle was a prize-winning film director, and he wrote, did a documentary one time saying, so what's your, what's your disability? So what's your disability? Implying that everyone has a disability. What's yours? So we don't take comfort in the failure of others. But we have encouragement to believe that in spite of our weaknesses, we can still be used in the kingdom. We can still prove ourselves, not by serving our interests, by in, you know, but in meeting the needs of others and serving them in the work of the gospel. Oh, and did I forget to say, you know, the football coach and his son? That was Jack Elway and his son, John. Jim, I think you're on.